Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another Sharp Special. Today we're looking at Sharp Sword and we're very, very excited. Uh, Jason is here as ever. Hey, Jason. Hello there. Wearing your costume or a reenactment of your costume? This is a reenactment of Harris's intellectual wear, where he gets stuck into Candide and saves the whole uh, episode. In fact, saves the whole war by breaking the code. Do I get the credit? Fuck no. But yes, this you is my. The line, so stop whining, because usually okay, you yes. get the lines. Yeah. <laughs> yes, this is my my Harris breaks the code costume. Oh, excellent. We also have Hugh Ross back with us. Hugh, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Good. How is war on the uh, authorities over the over 70s thing going? Uh, it's heat, well, heating up. Everybody's trying to get sort of get their voices heard. Equity have been quite good about it. Outstanding. Um, this is, of course, the nonsense that means no one over 70 can get insured to act anymore. And we're just going to replace them with young people wearing makeup, which is shit and rubbish. <laughs> Yes, Zach's done a hand gesture that I think speaks for all of us. But again, we will resend the petition around for you as well, Hugh, so everybody find out about that. We have, I'm quite, I'm going to, I'm going to fess up now and say that, that this man is one of my teenage crushes. Uh, James Purfoy is with us. Hello, James. Oh, bless you. That's very kind. I, seriously, I was like, while everybody else was obsessing over Heath Ledger in A Knight's Tale, I was like, I was not having it. I was like, no, he's nothing. He's nothing. <laughs> but... I do have to say, although one of my teenage crushes is here and I'm slightly excited, it pales in comparison to the excitement that I feel when I see Cocky's grinning face on a podcast. <laughs> Cocky! Uh, very kind of you. I don't think I compete with James, however, but there we are. <laughs> you do. Uh, Marcus and I, I don't know if you've know this, because we will tell anyone that will listen that Marcus and I have decided that the only thing we want from life, our one bucket list item now, is to go out drinking with you. We'll we'll buy the drinks if our pockets are deep enough, Cocky. Yeah, well, they'll have to be. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take a loan out for you. That's very good of you. I would recommend. You can't get it with my fucking bag. Can I come too? I'd really like to come as well. You're more yeah, of a course. Course. Yeah, it wouldn't be the same. Would not be the same. Um, we also have with us John Kavanagh. Hi, John. Hey, I'm How are you doing this year? Very much like everyone else, but I mean, I haven't uh, really been working away, you know. There's a bit of the last duel up in France with, um, yeah, and I'm out of driving. I'm busy, so not too long now. I mean, I don't know. Jesus, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, let's reminisce about a time where there were pubs and we could hang out and like hug people, you oh. know, without fear of death. Um, and where you were allowed to work without the government telling you that you were old and no longer useful to society. So we're going to talk about Sharp Sword. We also have with us today, we have, of course, our historical nerds with us as well. We have Zach White with us. You're right, Zach? You're right, Alex. 
he's actually put on a shirt with a collar for this. Make an effort. Cocky's here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Marcus is here. Hi, Marcus. Hi, I'm very good, thanks. I can just about hear Fisherman's Friends playing for my girlfriend downstairs, Ooh. by the way, so yeah. that's the distraction. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and we have also with us Boney, Matt Bone. How are you, Matt? I'm very well, properly geeking out today, again. So, and we so also much. have a chum of Hughes with us as well, Peter. Hi, Peter. Hi there. Hi there. Also geeking out, actually. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for having me. Okay, so I guess we'll do what we've um, started doing, and it works, because for people who are who are coming to this more from the history side um, and less from the TV side, Marcus is just going to put Sharp Sword into context for us, aren't you? Yes, going to try to. So Sharp Sword's a really nice one that it does follow the book a lot, but also diverges and makes it its own genre within itself. So in the in the books, it's following Wellington's brilliant victory at Salamanca, his famous victory in 45 minutes, crossing the plains, uh, finding an opportunity and winning. It's one of my examples I always use. Brilliant, brilliant battle. But weaving through in, I think, with always be sharp, the, the budget might not have fitted that. It takes it a bit later into the story towards uh, the edge of France, and it weaves in, that's in the books, a really nice story of spy and espionage which feeds into the wider guerrilla and intelligence network that Wellington had built up. And within that, we end up with spies and counter-spies and traitors and a theme of honour going through. Um, they remove some characters and add in extras. They make some, like Jack Spears, a bit more sympathetic, whereas in the books, he's a bit more of a rogue, perhaps. And we end up with an element of surprises that, Irishman who fought against Nelson suddenly on Wellington's side with brilliant lines of um, John Bull's a bad neighbour but Boney's a bully and then we end up with a sword fight with Simerson at the end in kicks running and screaming at the uh, battle it, it ends up between the books and the film having some unusual elements for historical um, action adventure we end up diving not only into uh, honour and spies, but we end up diving into medicine. I think Bernard Cornwell wrote it's one of the, the strangest bits of research he was having to do was going to I think St uh, Bart's or at least London surgeons and learn about infections, and uh, we we bring in all of that elements. And then he saw himself because unfortunately Sean Bean loses his, his sword. This one I'm holding in my hand, but people who can't listen to the podcast. Yeah, I bought it. Um, Sean Bean loses his sword, gets broken, and it gets recrafted from a, a French cuirassier sword. So there's a bit of blacksmith in there, and this is uh, for anyone listening. Um, that's a original I've got of a French cuirassier sword. And it's a really nice moment. It's quite poignant that Harper um, reforges a sword as a, as a symbol of hope to bring his best friend back, but also an officer should have a sword. So that's where the sword element comes in. And in, in the uh, in the films, we end up with a very large battle, a duel. And um, a sense of redeeming himself from a, from a turncoat spy. So that's sharp sword cost. Have you uh, admitted to your girlfriend how much that sword cost you? No. <laughs> <laughs> Short answer. <laughs> if I, I just jotted down some notes from when I read the book. I always do that. And um, in the book, we have Hogan and Leroy. They appear. In fact, Leroy gets killed in this book. Um they mention very briefly a, cap, a chap called Captain Scoville, and he was a, a the British Army's codebreaker. So I guess that was the, what they took, and they made my my story and, and ran with yes. that. Scoville, historically, uh, really interesting. He's the one who does crack 
uh, Napoleon's code. It's like an, the easiest way to think of it is like early Enigma. So they're sending some messages uncoded all across Spain and um, the Iberian Peninsula, and some of them are coded, and they've got these code books. And Scoville's on the on the staff, and he's got a head for numbers. He's gone to actually a military academy. He's trained as being an officer, which is a little bit on the unusual. And he brings it all together. He cracks the code. Uh, there's a brilliant book by Mark Urban just on him that I recommend for people interested. Bit nerdy, but very adventurous. Because without with this code, we're getting friends' messages, and they think that even if they lose them, they're, they're just nonsense to us. But we can actually tell where the French numbers are going to be, their strengths, their plans. So yeah, it helps shorten the war certainly. How and, and lastly, uh, the lot of scenes of, of, um, of faithful, especially the dying room scene where they go in search of Sharp, who's left for dead. And uh, as you say, Harper brings him back and fixes the sword. And they do the famous water water treatment, which, John, we must talk about because that was hilarious, right? Mm. In, Port- in Portugal, when the, the pulley system of buckets. We'll oh, yes. Yeah. God, I, I can't remember very much about that. Really. Oh, okay. I'll remind you. And, and the last oh. thing, which is uh, horrible, in, in the book, Teresa pops up at the end. So obviously this was shot and um, Enemy was written afterwards or whatever, but Teresa mm. pops up at the end of uh, the story and, and helps Sharp mm. convalesce fully. So it's a shame we missed mm. that. Anyway, there we go. Oh, yeah, so I'd also like to say um, this is the episode um, where Stephen, Stephen Moore was in. Uh, and Stephen Moore I'd known since I was a kid because I went to Holland Park Comprehensive School with his children, Robin, Heather and Guy. And I just want to say, because um, Stephen Moore died last December, Mm. So I just wanted to say a little tribute to Stephen. What a great guy he was. Played the part really nicely. Uh, he played the part of Barclay. Um, it should have been the part of Wyndham, but apparently um, uh, Clive Francis didn't want to do it. He said he asked for too much money, so they changed the character's name and called him Barclay and, and cast uh, Stephen oh. Moore. Anyways, so so here yeah, a tribute mm. to Stephen Moore, and also we have um, Pat Laffan, who was the dying room. Oh Irish. yeah, yeah. He also died uh, a couple of years ago. So. Just a little tribute to those guys as as we start off to get all the sad stuff out of the way. Indeed. Um, we were talking before we came on air, and I would love for the listeners to hear this. What is it about putting Cocky and James Purfoy and John Kavanagh together that made the Russians think you would be easy to extort money out of? Because it seems like wherever you went <laughs> in the former Soviet Union, you got hammered. <laughs> we sure did. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, as we were saying earlier, the, uh, we had, we had a meal in the hotel, the, uh, North Hotel. Uh, we had, we had four omelettes, a bottle of wine and a bottle of water, and it cost 200 US dollars. It wouldn't take, okay, that was uh, really, that, yeah, that took the rip off, man. It sure was, they really saw us coming in. And you, you got, there from you go. You a cash point, is that right? Yeah. No, Mike, Michael went across to the airport, I think, to get some money out of a mission. <laughs> did I succeed? I can't remember. You did succeed, yeah. It wasn't a very wise thing to do. I think you took a taxi. I mean, was the safest place to be knocking around particularly at night? John, you, you missed the story um, of the first encounter with the Novotel when um, yeah. when they replaced Paul McGann and, and we didn't yeah. know what was happening. We were all returning home and we thought the show was over. And we all rolled up to the Novotel at about 3.34 in the morning, completely knackered after waiting for five hours at Simferopol Airport. And our bus got pulled over and this chappy with a sort of leather jacket and a 
cap came on. He tried to shake down the bus and he was <laughs> quickly told, listen, you don't want to shake this bus down. It's full of foreigners. La 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 la. And he quickly realized and fucked off. So yeah, no yeah. tell And that whole area, good thing you didn't walk out and go on your own to find uh, Dosh Cocky. <laughs> <laughs> didn't the chap who arrived on the bus with his gun, didn't he, and um, that nice girl who was uh, our sort of interpreter, um, blonde girl, I forgot. Irina. Who? Irina Meldris. Irina, yes. Was it Irina? Yeah. And short blonde hair, short blonde. Yes. And, and she, she was sort of talking rather worriedly to this chap. And then from the back of the bus, there were a lot of... Um, uh, drunk is rather too far. actors. <laughs> on the way. With, oh, come on, darling, pull your little, put your little weapon away and all that sort of stuff, shrieking with laughter. <laughs> and the fellow with the gun just couldn't cope and, and sort of disappeared, sort of withered away and disappeared down the, s- s- down the steps of the bus. That you take on a Russian gunman with British drunken tourist behaviour and he literally just caved and ran away. He, well, it was a lot of camp behaviour, like um, and yeah. <laughs> whatnot and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> I think he just got a bit frightened. I think it is less than five minutes to get into the adventures of Cocky. I love this. No, no, it wasn't my adventure at all. Yeah. I, I was, I was well, very Ga- Gavin, Gavin was there, though. So you weren't there, were you? Ga- Gav was with us, I remember, for yeah, some reason. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he must have told you about that. But, it, you know, you don't mess with sharp film. We had six weeks of just pillar-to-post crap, and we were just, we weren't going to take any more. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that was, uh... <laughs> Brilliant. Um, okay, right. So we have a list of questions for people. Shall we start with James? Shall we start? Because everyone loves a baddie, don't they? And we have so many questions for James. James <laughs> weeded out the first 10,000, which were just basically people <laughs> going, oh, you're amazing and I love you, which <laughs> I'm a massive hypocrite because I've just done that. I was going to say, only 9,000 of those from Alex. <laughs> exactly. Uh, right, okay. It was, it was a well. suit of armour, man. I think there was a suit of armour involved, and I was very young and hormonal. Uh, okay, lots of Rome and Solomon Kane questions saying how wonderful you were, but this is a sharp podcast, so let's stick to this. Cynthia uh, so Donaldson says, James, the reason why I watched the Sharp series, I knew if he was in it, it was bound to be good. He said, She says, you made a great statement years later uh, that having a boring history teacher should be made a criminal offence. Which, So she says, to that end, do you prefer acting in historical films or Oh, you can't really say that, can you? Because it's, uh, you know, that's a sort of genre thing where, I mean, there are plenty of terrible historical films, you know, and there are plenty of terrible modern films. It always comes down to a script. It doesn't really matter, does it? It's always about whether the script is any good and the people involved are good and, you know, and is the money any good? You know, that's finally... fucking children as I do, then you need to make sure that you're, that they're being covered. So, um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I like doing historical films. I mean, I like, I, I just like working. I like being on movie sets and TV sets. I like crews. I like actors. I like, I like the fans. Yeah. Um, you know, it's fun, isn't it? I mean, it's a hell of a lot better than a proper job. Hell yeah. No, we don't do nine. Nobody on this podcast does nine to five. No way. No. Uh, lots of people have asked about your heroic, a pretty heroic demise for a traitor um, in Sharp Saw. Do you think you deserve such a death scene? Well, you know, I mean, I'd written this backstory for him because there wasn't much, there wasn't much explanation as to why he'd lost his arm. I don't think. 
in the book. I think he just they just chopped it off. But I decided that um, what was the French chap's name? Larue. Exactly. I decided yeah. he'd put Larue had put his hand starting at his fingers into a meat slicer, and then had just taken very thin slices. Juk, 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 all the way up to his shoulder. And I think, you know, when, when, if you imagine something like that happening to somebody, imagine the level of torture that is involved, then turning French or turning French spy becomes a little bit more understandable and a little bit more um, well, justifiable. But I, I kind of understand why somebody would go, right, enough, I'll do that. Whatever you want me to do, just stop slicing my arm off. Yeah. You know what? My co-host Alina isn't here today, but she is the grimmest, darkest person ever. And she would cringe at that backstory. That's epic. That's pretty dark to have come up with that. I mean, I didn't try to give him a backstory to give him more sympathy because yeah. a spy is a spy. But, I, you know, I think particularly his his case where he was tortured into it. Um, I kind of understand that as opposed to doing it for money or doing it for ideological reasons, you know. Mm. And a lot of other questions. Uh, Drew Bale, I'll read his out because his was quite funny. This is how hard is it to learn how to ride a horse, then ride a horse one-handed, and then ride a horse no-handed whilst waving a sword around? Yeah, I think I was just thinking about this actually when I got some of the questions through. Um, I don't think safety issues were a, a terribly strong suit on the sharp set in the Ukraine, and I can't for the life of me imagine people getting away with now. What we, what they got away with then. I remember very specifically this, which was, there was, it was quite a tricky moment where I had to carry the flag in my right hand. But then I had no left arm. So that was bound behind me with ropes underneath my costume. So they had to put this, this, this flag, they had strapped it to me. And then I had, there was a moment, obviously, where I had to draw my sword. And they were thinking, well, this probably is quite dangerous. So do you know what they did? Was they bound my feet together <laughs> underneath the horse. I would love to see the risk assessment for this. Which cannot be right. They literally bound, tied my feet together. So I was tied to the horse. I, I've had it gone wrong. There was the explosives guy, and of course you all guys all know this, but some of the people watching it they don't know that... I didn't know when I went to the Ukraine that the word Bolshoi just meant big. So it's Bolshoi ballet is just big ballet. And, they, and I asked the guy, I said, so the explosions that are going on around me, what what have we got? And he just went, malinky, bolshoi, bolshoi, malinky, bolshoi, bolshoi, malinky, bolshoi. Malinky being small and bolshoi being big. So these <laughs> explosions, these squibs, which were going off un, around the horse, left, right and centre. And then having to, and then having to go at a fair old clip across this ground with my feet tied to the horse underneath. Yeah, yeah that's not something you'd want to repeat. No, I love the bit. There's a question in all the risk assessments in there where you have to say, "What's the worst that could happen if I do this?" I'd love to have seen what they put in that box. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I, I guess, I could easily have just. Gone Spibbles, over yeah. the horse and, and underneath the horse. Underside of horse as it rides over Bolshoi explosion. 
Yes, quite. Yeah, brilliant. Um, also as well, someone wanted to know, uh, Gary, this is Gary Fowler, who often asks questions on these. Uh, did it stand you in good stead for your role as Edward Teach? Uh, gosh, I wonder why that would be. They're very two very, very different men. I think what it did do, I mean, in terms of the horse riding, horse riding, you spend a lot of time, if you're that kind of actor during your 30s, you do spend a lot of time on a horse with a sword welded to your hand, don't you? Um, that's kind of, I, I, I have a career which started off in, in white blouson shirts and breeches and long boots in period dramas. And then in my 30s, I was welded to a sword and a horse. And my 40s, I played billionaires and psychopaths. And my 50s, I think I'm just playing spies again. So it's all gone full circle. Well, Gary thinks you should be James Bond. Yeah, a little bit long in the tooth for that, for that now, love. I think. He says, well, he's got a contingency because he thinks you'd make a great M. Ah, OK. That would be good. I think Gary, that's... agent. Well, I think I, I isn't Mr. Fines playing M now? I think he might get a bit pissed. He's, that's probably his retirement fee. <laughs> Brilliant. He's M. dead now. Yeah, no, yeah, 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 yeah. So I'll try and keep up. Yeah, no, Ray Fines is now M. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's probably his pension for his old age. Spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen Skyfall. Indeed. Yeah, spoilers. Yeah, sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> Oops. Well, you've had enough time to watch it now, haven't you, really? It's got nothing to say but yourself. Uh, so uh, there's lots of stuff kind of that people just have got so much they want to ask you, not necessarily about shot. Um, did you, so it's first of all, so, so there's lots of questions about sort of the diversity of having the one arm on it. And someone wanted to know, where did you put your arm? Was it tied to your side or? No, it was tied to my back. Oh, okay. So it was tied behind me and tied up all underneath, uh, underneath all the costume. And then you put the costume on on top of that. Ah, because so, Kenny, Kenny Bonnet was very concerned about where your arm actually was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's where it was, behind me. I think we chose, it sort of depended. If I was being shot from the front, it would be behind. If I was being shot from the side, it would be down the side. It would all depend where the camera was. So it moved depending on what the shot was. Uh, cause yeah, I guess now, do they just CGI off limbs if they need to? I suspect they do exactly that, yeah. It's not in the sharp budget, was it? Lock it off with software. Yeah. Um, do you feel, Bjarke Fraser wants to know, this is quite funny because you've just sort of described the decade, decade by decade your career. Do you feel like you've got a bad guy face? <laughs> I think, don't, weirdly don't not. I think I've probably got a good guy face that turns bad. Yeah. No, I see that, yeah. I think that often I get cast as the person that you think, oh, he's not going to be him, look at his smile, he's not going to be a bad guy, and then he turns out to be a bad guy. Quintessential British bad guy as well. Yes. Elite few that carry that off. Uh, Laird wanted to know, why is there there no chance of a Solomon Kane follow-up? I think there's always a chance. There's always a chance. I mean, it's a difficult thing because the um, the the rights of those kind of things are always tricky to get hold of. Um, and yeah, actually, funnily enough, I was uh, using lockdown to work my way through that. Oh, no. so you're which prepping is, for the role, basically. Which is the entire the the collected works of Solomon Kane. I don't know, you know, might be, it might be worth having a little look at to see, um, oh, there I am on a horse, look at that. Yeah. Um, 
uh, might be worth looking through to see if there are any stories that could be brought in and brought made to. I think I think I I was I was inspired to do it. I found out a couple of weeks ago that the eighth most watched movie in Netflix on a certain day a couple of weeks ago, my eighth most watched movie in the whole world was Solomon Kane. Kane. So when I heard that, I thought, oh, maybe there's a market for it. That could be interesting. Well, seeing as Ray Fiennes has stolen that retirement gig on Bond, then maybe Exactly. That's... Yeah. Banned it. Um, uh, uh, James, I remember when I first walked into the dressing room, when I first saw you there, you were carving an oak burr. Oh. Do you remember oh, that? Look. Hey, how weird you should say that, Jace. Uh, cool. I was hoping that, I was hoping that might happen. Because here it is. Oh, yes. And I turned it into a box. Oh, cool. I carved out the middle of it, and here it is. It is an oak burr. And that was the one you were carving on sharp, on sword, yeah? yeah? The very oh, same. Fantastic. So you didn't often do that, or that was something you do all the time? Yeah, no, it's something I'll, I often will do. I used to make, I used to make weapons, um, like bows and arrows and swords and things like that for my kid, because I, I, I got a 24 year old boy. One of the boys is 24, and when he was young, I used to make him make him stuff when I was hanging around on set. Yeah. Our our son is 25. Um, Natasha was pregnant during Sword while she was on That's set. That's right. So. Indeed. Indeed, yeah. And he might be moving back in. <laughs> <laughs> what was your favourite thing about playing Spears? I tell you, I just I'd really liked going to the Ukraine. I liked working with all those people. They were just good people. Beanie, the rest of you, all of that, you know. Um, I, I thought, uh, and it was such an incredible, unusual adventure. And I'd arrived there, I think maybe four months after it had started that season. And, um, so everyone, <laughs> there was a certain, everybody was a little jaded by the time I arrived. <laughs> Um, and but the first thing I saw when I came up onto the corridor with all the rooms in that and I used the word hotel very loosely um, uh, the first thing I saw was people racing cockroaches down a corridor very plausible very plausible there was there were a whole bunch of planks of wood laid down like five or six lanes and I came around a corner and people were throwing money down on which cockroach was going to get to the end first. Year three was the year of the serious cockroach infestation. So, James, this is a picture of the Orlinia Cultural Centre where I first met you, where you were carving that burr. That's oh, where yeah. that is. Natasha and I went back there in 2011. Yeah. Did you? We went back, I went back to that cultural centre. They wouldn't let me in. <laughs> I, I worked. I just want to take a little photo, do a bit of video. Niet, niet. They wouldn't let you in. That's they a long way to go, not to be let in, Jess. <laughs> no. Well, I we I went to Baidar Valley, which is the little place we filmed most of Sword, down just down the road from here. So I yes. went back there to have a look at the uh, battlefield and reminisce. That was quite a trip. So I thought I'd come here as well, but uh, but it's cool. It's part of the experience. Having it, I mean, adult. I have more stories about that shoot. I think I'm sure we all do than than and pretty much any other shoot I've ever been on. I mean, the idea that I literally I ate only caviar. I think the yes. caviar was just extraordinary. How much caviar you could buy for twenty dollars? 
That whole jar, um, remember? The whole jar, like a kilo jar. A whole jar, like a kilo for 20 bucks, stolen from a local caviar factory. And because the food was not of the highest order, if I remember, at the cultural centre, there seemed to be a lot of pickles um, and and pork knuckle and things like that. So, um, And somebody, probably you, Jason, had the presence of mind to take a chip fryer over there. Well, not a chip fryer, but we, a lot of us had those little um, mini stoves, you know, the sandwich makers, which you could uh, double as, yes. as a grill. But somebody yeah. did have a chip fryer. So I lived on caviar and chips for like six weeks, I think. And every time I now go to a shishi cocktail party, if somebody's got three little eggs of caviar on a on a Ritz cracker, I, I look at it and I go, yeah, <laughs> really do it for me, actually. Um, our son was born um, in June of, of, of the next year. We still had that jar in the fridge. It was still going. And he would Maybe. we would feed him little pieces of uh, little soldiers with caviar on them. And he loved it. Magnificent. I, love, I just love the juxtaposition of sitting there eating from a kilo jar of caviar whilst racing cockroaches in your accommodation. Yeah. Uh, to to, to um, carry on with that, I was going to ask Hugh and, and Cocky and everyone, whenever I went to auditions after Sharp, I would spend... You know, half the audition discussing discussing the tales. Did you find the same thing at auditions, Michael and Hugh? Yes, for ages afterwards, I think. Yes. I'm still shocked because I can't get over the fact that James is now older than uh, I was when we first worked together. No. Which was which was in Bristol. At the Bristol Old Vic. In Hamlet, and and um, indeed. And James James was giving his Laertes, and I was Claudius, and Ian Glenn was Hamlet, and. Um, yeah, he was just, you, you were very, very young. And now you've got, how many children, James? I have four children now. Four? And, yes, we 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 have um, the, the the really tricky ones are the three-year-old twin boys that we've now got, who oh. I can hear in the background down the hall there. Um, but yes, they're quite a challenge. I'm sure they are. Anyway, because sorry to divert, but sorry to go off from the off, off message. I hear you've written a book, Jason. Yes, I, I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, funny. <laughs> I you should say that. For James and John, who don't know, this is Salky Bingo, because the listeners, every time he mentions his book, they drink, because he never stops mentioning it. And I see. Hugh is the master of Salky Bingo, um, and getting <laughs> there to get them completely. But yes, I have actually been given the release date. It's July 7th next year, and I'm actually, um, I've been told I have to hand back the copy edit next Monday the 7th. Wow. That'll be it. I can't do it anymore. It's going to go into. And um, what is the book a sharp book or is it a? Yes. yes. Yeah. I, when I was on sharp, um, I read this book called mm. The Recollections of Rifleman Harris. Do you ever come across it or hear about it? Yes, I think I might have done. Yeah, go on. Okay, because my character was based on him. My character was not in the sh- in the sharp novels. Right. So they, they wanted to have a dashing, intelligent, sexy rifleman, so they got Sean. No, no. Um, so <laughs> they put Harris in. Anyway, so when I read that book, I said, "You know what? I'm going to Russia." It's just broken up. I'm going to be working on a movie. I'm going to be the Harris of this movie. So I kept a diary during the whole five years of my time. Did you? And three of those were Crimean years. And um, on my premise is that they really made Sharp the look, the the look of disease and desolation and desperation on our faces really, really made the look of Sharp. So my book is called From Crimea with Love. I'm writing a book, yeah. And there was a, there was a point <laughs> that I wanted to mention, but I, I completely forgot. Um, there was a whole. Anyway, go on, go on, Alex, take it away. Should we do John's questions? Yeah, go. 
lots of these are about the technical aspects of your role in chart. So Martin Peake would like to know, could you handle a sword beforehand or did you have to take lessons? Um, a friend of mine um, was an expert, um, the sword fighter. I mean, uh, uh, it was kind of a champion sword fighter, so I had some lessons with him. But then on the day in the, that, uh, with the, the Beda Valley, wasn't it? Which is seven kilometers from Balaclava. The, the guy who was in charge of uh, the, the tutelage of the swords, I mean, he, he was a former Olympic champion. So it was uh, well served, you know. Guldis, his name was Guldis. Was it Guldis? Guldis, he yes. Kept, you know, when I was told, you know, to cut Michael on the shoulder and wherever, the, the, those vital points, you know, uh, he kept saying, Batman, Batman. I had clue what he was talking about. <laughs> this must represent some sort of word or something. Batman, Batman. Huh? Bolshoi. <laughs> Batman, it was Batman, but whatever that meant, I don't know. But it was a fascinating <laughs> thing. I mean, what that means, it's Batman. You were saying earlier, James, you, can, you, 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 can, you never shake it off, but the, the images are so vivid. I mean, even getting there was just an extraordinary adventure itself. Yeah, I mean, tell us about the flight. That was funny when you were sharing stories about the flight. Well, flying from Vukovar Airport, I mean, gee, we were delayed for about seven hours and we had a chap with us who played the saxophone, which was marvellous. But, uh, I mean, the lack of, uh, the, the, the flight, you didn't, uh, I don't think we ever wore safety belts, seat belts or anything, you know, take off. And, um, it was quite extraordinary. Yeah. Coming into Simferopol that time, coming in, Michael, I remember when we showed the plane, we showed, we showed a row of seats. That the wind coming in off the Black Sea was just terrifying. So much so, I think we told Sean Bean what the what the sort of a landing it had been, you know. And uh, we said, well, then we were heading for um, for uh, Portugal. Well, he says, no fucking way am I going? So we got the train. I think did you get the train with the Yes, game? I took. I I didn't want to take the tra- the plane back because um, I was sitting. <laughs> in what they loosely termed the VIP seats at the back, which just simply meant a seat with a seat belt. Oh, right. <laughs> um, you know, ooh, lucky chaps. Um, and had the chickens on your lap. And then I had, yes, on my left, there was a woman who had two chickens, live chickens, and on my right, a woman who had this gigantic bag full of flip-flops. Must have been 500 pairs of flip-flops that she was going down to, um, going down to Simferopol to <laughs> sell. Um, and there was a crack in the wind, in the, in the window next to her. And every sort of hundred foot that we went up, it would go. <laughs> yeah. And I kept thinking, are we just going to get sucked out of this fucking aeroplane or what? <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I didn't want to take the train, the plane back. So I thought it was too risky because I found out that, um, that, uh, in, what are they called? Um, Aeroflot. Aeroflot don't have to pay, because it was an internal Aeroflot flight, they didn't have to pay attention to international flight, um, you know, standards or federation rules or whatever. Um, so Beanie and I, and I think John Tans, maybe, took the train. Cocky. And Cocky, were you on that train, Cocky? Yeah. yeah. Good God. Well, exactly. I've ever well, that was the most extraordinary train. I mean, it was three days... 
and you'd wake up, you'd go to sleep, and the telegraph poles next to you, as you went across the Russian countryside, never they never changed. So you'd go to sleep for six hours, and you'd wake up, and the view never changed, did it? And then you would go in, and, and you'd wake up at a station, and there'd be a woman sort of step straight out of a Brecht play, to, to round up with scarves, beating the window with an old dry fish. To try and sell it to you. <laughs> yeah. oh, I've got to get, this is, and this is what you missed. And I remember that there was a cafe or a, a, there was a, there was a, uh, there was a catering kind of car on the train and all, there were, there were just pornographic, um, posters all over the wall of the, of the, of the catering car, of the restaurant car. It was just the weirdest experience from beginning to end. And Beanie couldn't stop talking about Oh, oh, when I get, when I get to, when I get to the Novotel, when I get to Novotel, I'm an eggs, I'm eggs and chips. <laughs> all he could think of and all he could talk about. Definitely. Food, food fantasies were a big, big deal. We, we dreamt. I mean, the third year wasn't so bad because, you know, we were going to Portugal. We knew it was going to be, but on the first year, you know, dream of pizza or Chinese takeaway or steamed broccoli or something you couldn't get at all there, you know. Speaking um, of food, meanwhile on the aeroplane, John thought he was going to get fed, didn't you, John? Oh yes, uh, yeah. We, I said, I said to Michael, I said, uh, um, I think we're going. I think we're going to get a meal this time because uh, I can smell garlic, but there was no sign of a meal coming. We just discovered then that it was the guy in front's armpits. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of a trip. <laughs> that was one of those. And then, of course, cholera. So we didn't realise that they had cholera and TB there. Now, this for health and safety. Look at the right-hand side here. Look, the left-hand side we were sitting on the right-hand side was just full of boxes was, of shit. This was this was all the cargo. But this was on the way to Portugal. Yeah. It's on the way to Portugal, yeah. The three-legged dog was a Bert running up and down. Bertie, he wasn't, didn't have three legs, but yeah, Bertie the dog, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember somebody had made a magic mushroom cake before takeoff, and I was terrified. I was going to get to the cockpit. <laughs> it did. You're eating magic, magic mushroom. Um, I was saying in, in one of the podcasts, Lyndon and I used to get, you know, a little bit. And uh, we would stand in the aisle as the plane was landing because no one told us to buckle up. No one, you know, we would surf down in the <laughs> aisle as it was landing, the most dangerous thing you could do ever. But we did it all the time. Yeah, yeah. But having said that, yeah. the pilots were very good. <laughs> yeah, they're brilliant. A lot of them are ex-military, you see. That's why they're really good pilots. You know, they've got, got to be to fly these things. But, I mean, I mean then the, the, the other big factor is, I mean, they tend to run out of fuel a lot of the time because they don't have, you know, they don't have the gold card for refueling for stars. I think when we got to Portugal, they didn't have enough money to refuel the plane, from what I heard. And in so fact, they, yes, that, that's right. That's very common. In fact, on the first year, Colin, uh, the props man, was saying, when we arrived on year one into Portugal, because we did the same kind of thing, they wouldn't let us disembark until we paid twenty thousand dollars because they yeah. didn't trust Aeroflot. Aeroflot didn't have a, yeah. a relationship, as you said, you know, with of you know, yeah. international travel. So they had yeah. so someone, Malcolm, the producer, had to come out with a briefcase full of um, uh, American dollar bills, and we could disembark. Yeah. So yeah. But there was something about not being. We were delayed for ages before takeoff. Is that it was there was a there was um, a fog over Spain or something like that, or some turbulent weather over. But they hadn't, they hadn't the money to buy 
the flight time or whatever you have to do. You know, I think this was it. <laughs> yeah, no, in <laughs> fact, if, uh, it's, it's, it's in my book, actually, uh, From Crimea with yeah. Love. Um, uh, we, we were, we were disallowed from flying over one country's airspace. There was some dispute. We couldn't fly direct, so we had to go around. Yeah. And that was, that was the case. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. That was. I don't think they'd file a flight plan or something. It was probably quite, actually, it'd, be, it'd make a terrific film, the, actually, the making of the bloody thing, just what we've been talking about. It's fascinating. Well, yes. I mean, the and they could use From Crimea with Love. Yeah. Well, there you go. So, away. It has a book. It has a book. Yes, yes, it's a book written by <laughs> oh. The Misadventures of an Actor on Sharp. That's what they've said. <laughs> is it available now? Say, say again? Is it available now? It's, it's available to pre-order now, yes. Thank you, yes, yes. You can pre-order now from Unbound. Um, and uh, if, you, uh, if you pre-order, you get your name on a list of supporters. <laughs> what more could you want? Which I think um, we've all done. Here's <laughs> is, is Bertie. Let me That's tell you. The three-legged dog, yeah. Bertie the dog, not three-legged dog, no, no. But let me tell you a little story about Bertie, um, which which also reminds me of Chris Burt. Chris Burt recently died uh, a week or so oh, ago. No, no, no. Oh, producer, yeah. So, so Sano, our lovely Portuguese hairdresser, she fell in love with this dog in Yalta Market. She went ahead and bought it. Ah! Chris was furious. She was like, you can't take the dog on the charter. No way, no way, no way, no way. So quietly Sano behind the back be, in fact Natasha went with her to, to some special office where they got all the papers and uh, and 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 in the end Bertie came on the plane with us to Portugal so it's a, a little dog from Crimea became a Portuguese dog I can't believe <laughs> yeah. the Chernobyl scheme of the aircraft uh, who thought that was a good idea or is Lovely, that just where it's rotting <laughs> it's this is really sad I I know the answer to that. They used oh, to yeah, have you're like, an aviation weirdo, yeah, aren't you? Go on. I'm, I'm afraid so. It, it, it was originally a floral motif so that when you flew, you'd be in a garden. Um, I like it. And that, that, that would have looked good in the 50s. <laughs> Sadly, yeah, but... by 1995, it looks a bit rotten. Uh, there's a great question here for John. Um, because God bless you, Chris Etchingham, I think, has not listened to enough sharp podcasts because he wants to know if the budget ran to giving you singing lessons for the dinner scene. No, 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 no. I've done quite done quite a few musicals. I've done about ten musicals. You know, the last one being Les Miserables. So, but sing when I was a boy soprano and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, no, and um, and I, but, uh, I, I knew that song very well. So, no, 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 I didn't have That's singing. Great. Chris, dude, they couldn't even give them bacon for breakfast. What makes you think they got a singing tutor in? <laughs> we did. We had John Tams, didn't we? So we didn't really need a singing tutor. Yeah. Um, Michael Holland asks, and I want to know the answer to one, how does it feel to be the man to finally give Simerson his comeuppance? Terrific, really. By the way, because although uh, he changed, I mean, uh, Curtis changed sides because, uh, I mean, well, he, he was, of course, he'd be pro-French and anti-British. Um, he thought still be a little bit of that union within him, uh, and uh, so it would it felt very good. And the only reason he changed sides, of course, was because Napoleon crowned himself at, uh, at the, the, the his uh, the investiture at the ceremony in the church. So that really got uh, Curtis's back up, and that really prompted him to change sides. But uh, I think he would have been very very happy to have good citizens come up and see up. Uh, Simon Williams says as well, um, he'd like to know, he, he loves the dialogue, um, how much of this was ad-libbed and off the cuff. It's brilliant either way, he says. Well, I don't, I don't think any of it was ad-libbed. I mean, I think it was all, it was all scripted, wasn't it, Michael? I think it was, yes. 
Yeah, that's none of that ad lib. No, no, that's all scripted dialogue. Yeah. There was a script. There was a scripted ad lib at the end where uh, I think we explained this. Where they um, at the end, um, Sharp calls out the baddie, the French baddie, and it was all supposed to take place in front of the the wooden fort that which we had just taken. And and I don't know if you guys remember, one of the security guards burned down one of the little outhouses next to the fort. Do you remember that? No. Yes. It was. It was. The, 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 your train was supposed to uh, be delayed, and Sean said, "No way, no way," because they were going to quickly rebuild, so they couldn't. So to cover that, um, uh, 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 when he's uh, calling the guy, he says, "You outside now, out there where the British dead died." No, because the fight was supposed to stay inside the fort. So Sean just simply said, "No, outside now." to fight me so that's why you I outside, <laughs> outside now uh, I will ask a couple of the questions as well because we did it for James people have asked about other roles you've done Felicity Gale says I fondly remember Mr Kavanagh from the brilliant court in a free state which fun which one of the, those two roles was the most fun to play oh by far Curtis certainly yeah going to the Crimea the whole experience of the of going to the Crimea apart from playing the part yeah, but there's no there's no contest there. Although Caught in the Free State, Caught in the Free State is a terrific piece of work also, and it's based on true stories about the spies that lived in Ireland during the what was hilariously called here. Everyone else was calling it the Second World War. We called it the Emergency. So I haven't figured that one out. So a lot of us, uh, a couple of spies came here. One was actually committed suicide, and I think they were kept in the current camp. A military camp outside Dublin in Kildare, rather. Um, but I think they were let out of weekends, uh, along with other prisoners of war, to go for a pint. <laughs> but they all came back. Oh, uh, Donald West would like to know how long did it take to put the makeup on for Vikings? Oh, cranky. First time, well, the first time, because we didn't know much about it. I mean, it took hours, about three, three hours maybe. Three and a half hours, but then eventually got it down to about 50 minutes with two people working on it. And we just start filming again, actually, because it's, uh, it's been redone for Netflix. Uh, the, the, the whole uh, story has been, uh, it's taking place 150 years hence. Uh, Christianity has come into the Viking world and the Vikings and pagans are fighting one another. The Viking Pagans, Viking Christians fighting one another. So it's become very interesting. They've also reached Nova Scotia and places like that. And so it's becoming fascinating again. But I've got a new face now. It's a lighter material and face can move with it. And also I can take the eyes out during scenes so I can walk around beforehand. They'd have to stay in. The whole makeup would be on for hours. I could only stay in it for about five hours before getting vertigo and various other things and sensory deprivation falling down. I always had a little fellow to guide me around the place. Now I can take the eyes out between scenes and and then uh, put them in for the scene. And then they're CGI'd. After that, they'd be CGI'd. Some sort of eyes to be put there. So it's, it's much, it's much, uh, much more pleasant experience. Yeah, I always like wondered if you could even breathe with that thing on. No, it's very difficult. I mean, sensory deprivation. I mean, you could see the Nazis would have loved this one. They probably had it anyway for torture. But I mean, uh, because you 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 would find it's impossible to eat for a start because the, the, the senses are kind of completely shut down. Uh-huh. Uh, so, but uh, it's because you can't see and uh, etc. But uh, it's much better now that I can take the eyes out and stuff like that. You know, mm. James is starting to feel bad about moaning about being tied to a horse now. Yeah, really. <laughs> Nothing, was it? <laughs> <laughs> just that, if that horse had fallen, I mean, Christ almighty. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 
James, didn't you also, didn't Slava Berlachko do a little bit of the writing, some of it? Oh, yeah, no. I mean, there was. I mean, there was a fall, wasn't there, that uh, where the horse reared up and he came off. Um, and then he, then he carries on the journey with the flag just by foot. So yes, he did do, he did do the fall for me. As far as I remember, yeah. Wow. Really brutal, brutal ending because all the stuntmen set upon you with their knives and their boots and it was really Yes, brutal. that's right. Exactly. Kicked me to death. But actually, it was all much more fun before you had to wear safety harnesses and things like that, particularly in the theatre. I mean, it's things I did when I think back in it now. The amount of injuries we got, but it, didn't, it was all part of the excitement, and the whole thing is about exciting an audience anyway. I can't see how you can do that without safety harness on. No, and it certainly makes you feel alive, doesn't exactly. it? <laughs> once you've finished doing a stunt like that, or once you've done, done it, you go, Jesus Christ, that was exciting! <laughs> well, I, I was going, I was got the stuntman to do it first, so particularly in theatre, coming on, on a rope, saying, out of a box at the, in the auditorium and landing on the stage during one of the musicals, like a H&S Pinafore or something like that. And uh, <laughs> get the stuntman to test the rope first. Well, the feet come down, then I'm not going to do it. But I mean, so just test your rope every night and off you go. And uh, but it was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> the injuries to prove it. Never change a flight path coming in on a rope from a box in a theatre. I did it once for the kids in the, at a matinee. I thought I'd come in over the children's heads, not not knowing that I turned backwards halfway over the auditorium and came in backwards and then just about stopped before I hit the back wall. But I did. <laughs> did you hit any of the children though coming in? No, I didn't. No. <laughs> no. Another one of those risk assessments that would have been highly amusing to fill out, I think. Yeah, but it, it was much more exciting. I mean, you know, uh, I miss it. <laughs> the good old days. Do you remember Tim the Doctor? Doctor, yes, Doctor Tim. Oh, yeah. So let me tell you an amazing story about Doctor yes. Tim and I. So yes. we're sitting in the bar one night, late in that in that uh, in the cultural centre, late, maybe sort of three o'clock in the morning. We've had a few drinks, obviously, and uh, maybe some other things to help us along. And um, uh, suddenly a man rushes in and he says, uh, quick, help, one of the drivers just fall from balcony. And uh, we were, what? I, and, and Tim had his medical bag with him on the floor. And we rushed downstairs and it turned out that this man had been sitting with his back talking to somebody sitting on a balcony with his back to the to the fall if you like he was laughing so hard he fell off the balcony four floors up and he landed with his insteps um sort of on an angle on the floor on the on the on the dirt below and broke both his legs and uh tim there was quite a lot of blood and Tim, we were drunk. I mean, badly drunk. Tim took, cut his legs open. He's cut his trousers off and there were bones sticking out of his shins. <laughs> and Tim said, look, you just hold them in. You hold it, just hold the bones into his leg while I, and he found a stick. <laughs> and he just, and he used the stick as a splint. And just bound the guy's legs up while an ambulance was on its way. And he said, I, and it, cause the guy couldn't move, he couldn't move his legs. And I think he had a back injury, obviously a terrible back injury. And Tim said to me, uh, drunkenly, he said, do you think I should operate? 
<laughs> do you think I should go in with him and operate? I said, but you, you're really, you if you're anything like as drunk as me, I don't, it's not probably a very sensible idea to operate on the man. I said, he said, no, you're, you're probably right. And anyway, the ambulance driver took the guy away, who was then paralysed, I have to say. Awful, but that was true. He, he did, he, I think he was paralysed from then on. And Tim and I went back to the bar and we carried on drinking. And it was only when the light started coming up in the morning that we realised how much blood there was all over us. All over my face, my chest, everything. There was blood everywhere. And then we went to work. Amazing, James. Yeah, that, that incident's in my book, by the way, from Crimea with Love. Absolutely just amazing. I mean, the oh. idea that you find yourself on a set somewhere pushing somebody's bones back into their legs, drunk, three o'clock in the morning. It sounds a bit just, more realistic like the Peninsula War, then. <laughs> Battlefield yeah, sure. and drunken adventures. Yeah. And Tim was brought out, Dr. Tim was brought out solely because we had little upset stomachs from the Jardia. <laughs> And that's what he was brought out to deal with and uh, had to deal with that in the end. <laughs> but didn't we all get, get to have a good few drinks one night in the uh, in the Yalta Hotel? We used to go down there when the lights came on at five o'clock and we all got slightly pissed. I think Tim lost his bag so he couldn't cure anyone, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then we also pissed. I think he... And he had to sleep outside his room because he couldn't get in. And I think somebody painted his glasses. And when he woke up, he thought he'd come to. <laughs> Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Okay, should we do Cocky's questions next? Yeah, let's please do, do that. Cocky. Hello. Are we ready for some questions? Yeah, sure. Oh, Nigel Betts, apparently he gets to go first because he's sharp alumni. He was Pycroft in Mission. Uh, says, How did you like it down the mines in Hampstead? Oh, um, yes. I did a play with Nigel, a thing called Wonderland, um, about the miners' strike in 84. And in order to do a bit of sort of background stuff, we were all taken up to, I think it was Wakefield. And uh, and we went down in a mine um, to see what they actually had to go through before we replicated it on stage in Hampstead. And, uh, well, it was horrible. I mean, how people could work down there for 10, 12 hours a day as they used to, and then eight hours a day, of course. Now, it was a, a particularly loathsome experience. 
Richard Phillips would like to know, did you have to keep the coin in your mouth while you were being dragged up by your nose from a sofa and frog marched off? <laughs> Only every other Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually remember this bit at all. <laughs> I mean, who was it who asked this question? Richard Phillips. Well, Richard... When uh, Emily, puts, Emily puts the coin in your mouth and closes your mouth with the gun. Oh, right. Yes. Well, presumably, yeah, unless it was a sort of jump cut to something else where I'd have taken it out. But, um, <laughs> or swallowed it, probably. Um, <laughs> I don't actually remember it at all, but so I can't really answer Richard's question. Uh, Matthew would like to know, what was it like coming back as a character that audiences love to hate? How much fun was it? Well, as everybody said, I mean, the, the whole thing about Sharp was that it was enormously fearful and enormously amusing. And when that, when that, was it James or John was saying, uh, you know, that, um, you know, the, the, because of the lack of health and safety and all that cobblers, um, life was a lot more on the edge and therefore a lot more exciting than, than filming is now. Drew Bale says, have you ever read Voltaire and how did you feel about offering the book as toilet paper? Um, I had, well, obviously it wasn't Voltaire. It was a sort of, um, have I ever read Voltaire? Well, no. All I can remember about Voltaire is, I think it was William Blake. It said, mock on, mock on, Voltaire Rousseau. You throw the sand against the wind and the wind blows it back again. That's all I really know about Voltaire. <laughs> so you had no qualms about wiping your ass theoretically on his work? <laughs> well, theoretically, no. <laughs> Drew also wanted to know, was that your best come-hither look when you were coming on to Lass? <laughs> well, it would have worked on me. <laughs> well, I <laughs> did work on Emily, whatever it was. Oh, and so I, famously on your last appearance, you revealed that you were um, a shit horseman and that it basically dragged you around the set and you had no control over it whatsoever and were terrified. Uh, the duel scene, are you an old hand with stage fighting and sword play? Was that any better? Well, I'd done a bit of sword. I mean, as a child, I was playing Zorro and things, um, fighting with uh, twigs with uh, other friends of mine. Um, we d I did a lot of sword fighting playing as a child. Uh, and did one or two plays where I had to sort of dabble around and a bit of this and a bit of that. Um, but it was that chap we've seen before who told me exactly. I wasn't terrified because I, working with John, um, who I always thought was a wonderful actor, still do. Um, and uh, we just sort of did the moves we were supposed to do. And I mean, it was sort of, you know, like most sort of fights, what you don't want to do is injure the other guy or be injured by the other guy. But uh, no, I had no no worries about that sword fight at all. I mean, we were told to do what we did, and we did it as best we could. <laughs> I, I, was, I was told to shut up because because I was such a coward. I started sort of screaming and crying like a baby. <laughs> and uh, the said, "Oh no, no, no! For fuck's sake, shut up!" <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh no! Remember that, John. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh no, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, tell them to stop. I love this photo of you, Cocky. That, that outfit. 
Marcus is going to like replicate that outfit. I, I think I need to. Yeah, the flat cap, very smart. Yeah, pulling that off, jeans and a flat cap. Yes, well, cigarette in hand. But not you don't look like a northerner who just needs a whip it either. The whip is just just to the just to the left of me. Landed gentry, I think. Down your trousers. Uh, and Andy Openshaw would like to know how much do you enjoy playing foppish bad guys? Well, there's nothing better, really, is there? I don't think so. I mean, you know, to be sort of camp and evil is. I mean, well, you are the ultimate foppish bad guy for me. Well, that's very kind of you to say, so, Danny. Um, <laughs> I, I have such a cocky crush; it's ridiculous. So does Marcus, though. It's not just me. <laughs> Sorry, what such, you such a cocky crush sounds very funny. <laughs> oh, you got to be careful with that turn of phrase. Yes, <laughs> such a cocky crush. <laughs> well, we come out of it fast. You know what I mean. Couples are far worse off air. We're vying for your affections, cocky. Now that chap saying he was Richard. Yes. Yes, Richard yes. Moore. He was Richard our military Moore. advisor. He was. Yeah, I remember. Him. He took um, he took the chosen men through their paces a couple of weeks before we went out to the Crimea back in '92, and <coughs> gradually started playing riflemen more and and filling in the back of the shots when they started killing the chosen men off. Yeah, he was a very good, but he was great. He was a he knew everything and and he dressed like that. In fact, at the, at the read through back in '92, he was dressed like that. Yeah. And um, as as he left the room after he'd done the read through, I saw him. What I thought was a uh, a fishing bag. It was actually a rifle bag. And he went down onto the Baker Lou line down to Warwick Avenue, dressed like that with his rifle bag. I thought, what the hell have I let myself in for here? <laughs> and I get a Christmas card, not from him, but from his his deputy chap who who's, who's well, he gave my son a one of the swords in the in the sharp armory, uh, very kindly, which is now somewhere above. Will Whitlam. Will, exactly so. Yeah. yeah. Are you still in touch with Will? Yes, every Christmas. Oh, good. Oh, good. I must get. I must get his details. I must invite him on for a, a crew yes. podcast. Oh, well, he's. A, he was. How is Richard? I mean, is, what's he doing now? Yeah, I mean, th- this question often comes up. He's a bit of a recluse now. He doesn't want to do a podcast. He doesn't come out to uh, reenactments. But I did see him a few years, uh, for a few times until probably ten years after Sharp, and then we didn't see him. But there is someone on the Grand Reenactor Network who is in touch with him. So right. he's, he's okay. He was ill for a number of years and he got divorced from um, Julie, was it? Julie? Marcus knows him, don't you? Mark? I know through him. My, so I do reenactment as well as the Army Reserves and stuff. And yeah, our boss uh, has his contact details, but he's asked to be very private. Uh, he gave away all his collection recently, which was the big shame because it went to the guy he gave it to, emigrated to, Amer- uh, to America. And it had everything, like the, the colours of the South Essex Regiment, which was in Cocky's house, I think, in Sharp's Regiment. And he had, a, I think, he had one and a half as not guns and Sean Bean's jackets. And it was just an amazing collection, it was like three or four cabinets. And it's all gone to someone's uh, office in America. Amazing. Like, we thought Sean Bean had stolen stuff off set. That's nothing to write from more. It was just taking a button at a time. <laughs> Yeah, I did a I did a war war games convention in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and and that guy Tim who got it all, he had it all there. I was like, whoa! I was amazed. I'd never seen such a great collection of sharp stuff. Yeah. Simon Walker would like to know, Cocky, do you think Simerson has any redeeming qualities? None whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> and I made him that way. 
well, I mean, he was a, a gift for any actor. I mean, any actor who couldn't play him couldn't act, really. Uh, he said, uh, Dale asked as well, do you have, uh, we know what Marcus's favourite line of yours is, because he does it three, four times a week, he quotes it. Uh, what's your favourite line or scene as Simerson? Uh, well, my favourite scene. Um, the one where you were tied down naked? No, that wasn't my favourite. Was <laughs> that was a deeply disturbing thing. In fact, I've been slightly psychotic ever since. Um, <laughs> Sean Bean, at the end of the scene, uh, gave me a... I think I might have said this before. Um, Say it again. But uh, Sean Bean, came after the scene, gave me a very small pebble um, and said, that is exactly what your cock looks like. (laughs) 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 It wasn't... it It was like pea shingle. (laughs) <laughs> it's like a, a very small brown pea shingle uh. <laughs> which uh, yes I felt well it was rather embarrassing but dear Michael Mallinson who one of the f- best f- firsts I've ever worked with in, in my entire career actually Michael Mallinson uh, he was very good very careful and understanding and soon as the take was over he used to put an umbrella over that particular piece of my equipment. Not that he obviously needed to bother. <laughs> anyway. um, yes, it was kind of embarrassing. There's a lot of, you know, Indian people around there looking at me as if I was a you know, complete fool for doing this scene. Uh, I, didn't, I don't think I had anything to say. I just had to lie there for what seemed like hours, spread eagle, stark naked, in the, in, in the, on a very hot day. He would tie down Spread Eagle, and we went back and watched them all recently, and it's, yeah, no shade, just That's it. very naked. Yeah. Um, There's Mike Mallinson in action. And there he is, bless him. Yes. Very dear man. Liked him a lot. Charles Battle. Now married to Sarno, of course, and a little yes. in, in Portugal somewhere. Yes, that's right. And still there, I, I, he came over for Muir's funeral oh. last last January or December, yeah. So he's, he went back to Portugal, yeah. Are you in touch with Michael at all? I I was, and I went and I asked um, Alejandro and Stuart if he had his number, but they don't. But I'm sure I can find it. I, I, I'm going to track him down. Someone will have it, and I'll get okay. it to you. Well, if you if you if you have ever have speech, give him lots of love from me because I yeah. liked him a lot. I liked him a lot more than I liked was it um, Michel Mark Genet, yeah, Mark Genet. Who used to say, "Quiet, please, quiet, please, French little chap, little French chap, with a bit of a Napoleon complex," <laughs> and he used to shout, "Quiet, quiet, quiet! We are shitting now. We are shitting." <laughs> so we always used to spend a rather long time saying, "Are we going? Are we, are we going to be shitting soon, Mark?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he wasn't very nice to the locals either. No, he didn't last very long, did he? he lasted two years. Oh, he did last a long time, too. Yeah, he did. In fact, Michael Manson, Michael Manson replaced him. Yes. Um, but he was, uh, yeah, he was very, but, but he drove the schedule through and that, if you do that on Sharp, you're, you're, you're God, you know. He drove the schedule through, didn't care about nasties. We were, we were worried that we weren't, uh, making a good show. And he said, listen, guys, this is not art. This is a factory. Get your shit together. And we're like, okay, fine. 
yeah uh, yeah so in, in a way that was good to have be disabused of that but uh yeah I love it when we get stuff like this. James Wood would like to thank you, Cocky, for helping his mum and his sister off a train at Tombridge in the 1980s. How <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, very sweet of him. I, I remember, do you remember it, Cocky? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. Cocky does stuff like that all the time. Yes, yes. Falls into his many humanitarian acts. Uh, we did get one about something else that you filmed and I'm interested in this one because I'm a football fan uh, Gary Fowler is back he says what is it like what was it like filming Escape to Victory with such great directing acting and footballing talents like Pele well it was a wonderful experience and I was stuck over in Budapest for I don't know two months and um, I don't know how to explain this story because it's uh, uh, do we get out before the uh, nine o'clock anyway um, it goes out for adults only. <laughs> well, it was, uh, I was sent out to Budapest, um, and, uh, you know, met the actors, uh, and, and the footballers. You used to have wonderful nights with, uh, Bobby Moore and Johnny Walk and Mike Summerby, who were the, some of the footballers. Um, Pelly, I, of course, I met and was a very nice chap, but I don't remember actually going out. I remember having dinner with him once, but, um, and, uh, and the actors, you know, Tim Pickett Smith, who's a great friend of mine at the time, and uh, Dan Massey and all these people, and Michael Caine. I mean, they, they were extraordinary, wonderful. However, I sat there for about a month and I was never called and I couldn't understand what on earth was going on. So I emptied my, my, um, the, you know, the mini bar, uh, clear really, because there was nothing else to do. And, um, uh, Eventually, I got a phone call about five in the morning, one morning. Uh, this was literally in, after about five or six weeks. And a voice at the other end said, are you ready to work? And I said, yeah, sure. Well, get your ass down here, boy. We'll go on. So I did. And I went down and got into a van and went out. And they'd built this prisoner of war camp about 10 miles outside of Budapest. And um, I went into my loser beggar, sat there for hours, waiting to do a scene with Sly Stallone. And, uh, anyway, eventually somebody came after about eight hours and said, uh, so he's not here. I said, where is he? He's gone, for, he's gone to Paris for a fuck. I said, oh, fine. Okay. So we won't be using you today. So I went back in the thing. This happened about six times. I called early in the morning, got in the bus out to the prisoner of war camp. No sly. Where's sly this time? He's in Berlin having a fuck. All right. <laughs> and, and then he was in Prague having a fuck. So after, I mean, we, he'd, he'd gone around Europe <laughs> having endless fucks rather than being a stupid dude. <laughs> fucker. Well, and after a while I was sent home. I, I did do the scene eventually with him and I, I don't know how he managed the time really, but anyway, <laughs> he did. And some, some months later I got a postcard. Oh, no, no, a big a 10 by 8 with him and me in this scene. And on the back, he'd, he'd written, um, lovely to work with you, uh, do you box? Love Sly. Now, I, th I thought this was a total joke, you know. Um, box me with him. I mean, he's, he was about 3 foot 8 and <laughs> tall and 4 foot 8 wide. And that was just his arm. And... Um, <laughs> 
you know, I, can't, I couldn't see myself actually in a ring with Sly Stallone. And I assumed it was a joke from somebody on the set. But then, of course, all these Rocky films came out, and I thought, well, I should have bulked up a bit, because <laughs> these go on forever. I, <laughs> you know, as my son said with the boxing match, he said, never never bet on the white guy, and uh, <laughs> which I've always thought was rather a good, good phrase. And... Um, so that was my experience of working with Sly. Max von Sydow, I did enjoy very much. Um, we, we had several dinners together. I really we said, but I, I did like Max very much. In fact, I liked everybody. I wasn't terribly keen on Freddie Field, who was the producer, who when I introduced some actor to him, he said, I know who the hell, who the hell this actor is. I employed him. And I thought, well, oh, sorry. <laughs> One of those difficult times with the producer. Is that nasty? What? <laughs> yeah. I love it. Already, halfway through that anecdote, I was already messaging our cartoonist asking him to do a Cocky versus Sly Stallone Rocky um, <laughs> cartoon. Oh, because the, the end of the story is, of, of the uh, of the Budapest thing, was that um, I learned when I got back to England eventually, after about two, two months, um, that the English casting director hadn't, no, the American casting director hadn't told the English casting director that my part was cut. <laughs> and although I'm, I'm building, I've, I've seen the film once and I wasn't in it. But I remember spending quite a long one, one day, a whole day crawling on my stomach trying to escape from the prisoner of war camp. Um, but it never appeared in the film. But there I am because people say, what did you play in that? Cause I saw your name in it. And I said, I played a chap called Farrell. I think his name was. But um, he didn't appear. Are you ready, Hugh? Yes, I'm ready. Are you? <laughs> I just, I do wonder what goes through people's minds sometimes when they send questions in. Margaret Brown, bit of a saucy question, and apologise. Uh, apologies if it's been asked before. But as a broad Scotsman, what were you wearing under your kilt as Munro? Do you know, I've no recollection whatsoever, but I definitely had something under there, didn't I, Cocky? <laughs> well, I didn't know. I didn't <laughs> <laughs> I remember being so pissed with you one night in uh, in Yalta. Terrible, unbelievable. Anyway, sorry, just kind of reminiscing. No, I, I think I probably just had a pair of. I don't know what sort of. I don't know. Yeah. It's funny if we say like the old tighty whities like yeah, old probably, yeah, the old old wife front, the yeah. Munro wife front. Something completely unalluring. And you're very unalluring. <laughs> very, very Long before Calvin Klein's. But please do reminisce about being drunk with cocky because people love it. No, no, no. Just, I just, I can, I can see the room actually. I don't know. I can't remember quite how it's all rolling around and laughing hysterically. Uh, anyway, I haven't seen him cocky for ages either. It's awfully nice this meeting all your old friends. Isn't it just? Yes, it's great. Yeah. Matt, do, you, do you have that? Um, was it bottle? That you sent me the picture of. Yes, no, I didn't. No, I haven't got it here actually. I, I no, I haven't. I sent, I sent Mark. So I found Monroe's finest rum or whiskey or whatever it was. <laughs> I sent it to Marcus because we we become friends on on social media. Um, <laughs> Modern yeah. way, yes. It was a really nice image. It's, 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 it looks pure and authentic that someone's put your name and his I, name and all that. No, 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 I know. I should have brought like it. Before. Really yeah. nice. Yeah. Yeah. I always like to know what people have um, borrowed from sets. 
Yeah. So you, John hasn't been on. John, you haven't been on before. Have you? Did you? Did you take anything home from filming? No, from shop. Yes. No, no. The only thing I have. Uh, no, I don't. I have. I have. I have my sword from uh, from Alexandra. Right. Uh, I have two uh, prosthetic faces from Vikings. <laughs> uh, that, that's about it. No. <laughs> No, I don't take them, and I don't have any mementos except for those. Yeah. No. Matt, you had a question for Hugh. I, I, I did. I, there's the hat game in Sharp yeah. Sword is fantastic. Everyone's got fantastic hats, and there's someone who cannot wear a hat. I'm always jealous. But you went, you end up with that great big white Stetsony sort of thing yes at the end which james was wearing at the beginning of it so did is there a scene that was cut where he lost a bet and had to give you his nice hat i don't think so no there was, a, there was an awful lot of fuss about hats because i had in in gold i have a huge hat which was constantly people were saying we can't see your face we can't see and oh get That's another cool. hat for monroe blah 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 um <laughs> i don't know what i can't i honestly can't remember matt i'm sorry Peter wanted to know, uh, where did the Great Dane come from and what happened? Yes, Great Dane was belonged to um, Barclay, uh, Stephen Moore. Remember, oh. there was a Great Dane. Ah, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Now, I figured, where did they come from? Because, because um, Clive Francis had them in Sharp's company. So they, they were being, it was a, a repeat of those, those dogs. I think the same one, but it was only one. But, but um, it probably was the horse, the people who got the, the horses, you know. Some someone like that, so they were acting acting dogs. Well, that's one of the problems with sharp with the the internal bits rumbling underneath that you don't see on screen is that the kernel changes every episode pretty much, uh, apart from uh, cocky coming back, but not as the kernel. And actually, the the commanding officer in the book stays the same for a long time. You've you've got people like Lawford and. Who he stays as the, I think the major, he's the Grenadier Company commander, and then he's the major, and then eventually ends up as the colonel. And he's in loads of episodes, but because of, I presume, script reasons, let's be nice, um, they get written out. So we should actually see lots of people from Eagle and Company come back time and time again. And in Bass, and in Swords, definitely should have some of those old faces from the, the first and second series, yeah. You know, shortly after uh, Martin Jacobs, he played Lawford. Martin Jacobs. Remember, Cocky? Martin? Martin Jacobs, I remember him, yeah. Yeah. He moved to Australia not long after. Okay. So I figured they didn't want to pay the airfare to bring him back. No. Because Lawford is... Oh, I think, I said, I, Lawford is... It's uh, Leroy, so I'm going to get it wrong. Uh, yeah. But know, Leroy also is in all the books. Yeah, he's, he, he, he's in all the books. And in fact, he... Dies in, he dies, is dies in honour. He dies in, dies in honour. A sword, sword, yes, uh, sword, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I yeah, figured yeah, Lawford was last back. Would have been a big one for him. It would have been brilliant, yeah, yeah, yeah. because you know he teaches uh, Sharp to read. That's the, that's the story in, in Eagle. That's Lawford. Yeah, Lawford. Yeah, that's Lawford. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so Lawford keeps coming back, and Leroy keeps coming back, and uh, Hogan keeps coming back. Uh, it's all a bit strange. <laughs> I, I, Natasha wanted me to remind uh, Cocky, we were listening to a Poirot the other day on the radio. It was an old Poirot where you were playing, um, you were playing something, but he, uh, he came up with a, I've had enough of this absurd Fandango. And we were just <laughs> in creases all day long. Oh, that needs to be every, can you do that line? And I'm going to make it my text message alert. 
Uh, you give it to me again? Yes, sir. So I've had enough of this absurd Fandango. I've had enough of this absurd Fandango. See. You know what? If we're doing Tesla, you must do a horse guards quote for Marcus. I have friends with horse guards, huh? <laughs> Outstanding. All and Wellington have... just explodes at you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All of us yeah. have text message alerts now. Um, Hugh... How many times in the last 20 odd years have you been asked about the bloody bagpipes? Oh, crumbs, masses of times. <laughs> lots and lots and lots of times. Always did you actually play them, etc., etc., etc. Um, yeah, no, I've never, never knew anything about them whatsoever, really. It was all just, I don't know who taught me to do it, actually, even to make an attempt at doing it. Well, the, the guy, Bob, Bob White. Do you remember yes, Bob White? That rings a bell. Find a picture of him. Yeah, so he was the one that dubbed over, you know, whatever you're playing. He's that's right. Playing. That's right. Yes, yes. And in fact, I remember coming home one day and and he was practicing. I was like, "What the hell is this?" Yes, yes. So uh, yeah, here we go. His, oh, he's his, a nice chap. I remember. Doing great. Yeah, yeah. He was really nice. Yeah. Did you have? We talked obviously um, about James being tied to a horse and about Cocky being tied down with his tackle out. What was your most undignified moment on shot? Uh, oh. Well, the thing about it, I'm not sure, I was going to send Jason a photograph of a silver boat, but when I was ill and had shingles and, was, and the doctors all came, the doctor came, this was not being shot, but the doctors all came with chef's hats on and rubbed embrocation into this thing, making it much worse in the end. And I mean, my, and I can remember being in that room in the sanatorium. Just one wanted to die. That was my, and then having, having to shoot big long night scene with, um, El Casco, whatever it's called, the coming, coming up very soon afterwards. Um, most undignified. That's your room, Hugh. That's hmm? room. Yes. Gorgeous, isn't it? That was in Yalta, that one, actually. Yes, yes. That's what I was right there. You had the problem back in there, uh, Simferopol. Yeah, yeah. Everything's Simferopol. Well, that looked like the height of 50s decor there. That was luxury by comparison with the other one, this one here in Yalta. Um, no, so undignified. No. <laughs> It's hard to top cockies, isn't it? It is very hard to top cockies. <laughs> Unfortunately. Uh, so we talked about other people's um, sort of other things they've done in their career where questions came in. And I, you know, I got the shock of my life the other day. You were in train spotting. I was. Yes. I, yeah. Yes, I, thought, I mean, you say that to people and their mouths fall open and say, what was the scene in your time? It's only a short scene. In fact, there were two scenes, but one of them was cut. Um, uh Yeah. That and Bronson. People always go on about Bronson, mm. which I was in too, which I played a very odd very character odd man. who was described in the text as being a cross between an East End gangster and no coward. <laughs> 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 was rather a challenge. <laughs> I think we should ask Jason some questions because, Jason, this one, you had quite a big role in this one. They do say that, yes. I mean, you know, I, I save, I save Sharp's ass. I save the whole army's ass. I, I break, I break the code. I, I, I win the war, basically. Is this mentioned in your book, Jason? It is mentioned in my book. <laughs> yeah. And if, in fact, this was the year where I got a much bigger part, and they said, "Yeah, we're not giving you any extra money, and we'll get someone else if you don't want to accept." Well, Thank you. Did yeah. they ask you to be like the the Harris intellectual? Or did you kind of start to suggest it? Because I can't remember um, Dan Hagman, you know, John Tams, in this episode. He's, like, just in the background. He doesn't, like, speak. But you've got quite a, a nice role. 
did they 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 had they had to have a certain quotient of chosen men and they were way over with me so I thought well we better knock knock John Tams down. Oh, there was oh, also oh. John John was quite ill as well so he did miss a bit of filming you know in in the background and stuff but yeah I was so lucky I was really happy um uh you know I had a part in the narrative which which chosen men never really did um I had good scenes I had good scenes with Sean uh, which was a lot of fun to do because you know we we, we, in fact, we even rehearsed our scenes, which I'd never done before. Sean and I would go down the bar, have a drink, rehearse our scene. And uh, you can see on screen, because it's, re- it's really natural and lovely. Of course, we had the camaraderie, but it was so great to be doing those kind of scenes. Um, but as you said, it came at the expense of other chosen men, you know. I, I would prefer Lyndon and Cooper to be there. and We all have a little bit of yeah, action. Um, so, by this point, yeah. Lyndon Perkins has been killed off. Cooper's left. Tongue's left. So I guess it's only you and John and then Dara as the, the chosen men. But yeah, you, you suddenly actually appear and you're doing something a bit more unusual. I think it, like in Mission, there's a really nice bit where you're left back. So you miss all the fighting. But mission, you get, mission was later. Mission, this is, you, get, this is, you get a bit more fleshed out. So you a bit more harassed. Yeah. Um, because um, the, the, the lineup scene in Sharp's uh, rifles, where in, we're in front of those big rocks and... and and Sean, so what can you do, Harris? I can read, sir, quarter to my Lord Bacchus, et cetera, et cetera. So John Tams wrote the, that scene because they were short. I know we've mentioned this in other podcasts. John Tams wrote that scene. So basically wrote my history. And um, I did have a choice because I didn't really know. I, I knew that the real Rifleman Harris couldn't read or write, so he wasn't a, 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 an educated man. So I had the choice where to talk Harris like this, like, you know, Cooper and Tongue were doing, or the way I did it and I chose the other way so it sort of fit in um with the way John had written it so no it just it sort of it evolved like that if if this guy Harris is responsible for a book then he must be clever so that's that's because I don't know if you know that I, I I've actually got quite a bit of shared things with Harris which I really like so he was born just over the hill from where I was born his one of his barracks was in Portsmouth which was my last regiment's barracks and then he goes to hospital for his like malaria where I was born. So I've always quite liked the real Harris as well. The links. I mean, I don't have the, the Dorset accent, the tratter, but um, yeah, that's why I imagine he'd have a bit more tratter going on and a bit more, bit, bit more shader. <laughs> and, uh, that's my best. I'll just insult everyone from my hometown. Brilliant. Are we, are we, are you a bit of an actor monkey, Marcus? Is there a little actor lurking in there? <laughs> I don't think so. He's, he's one of the, so he's a reenactor, which everyone else, and they yes, don't what, like what is that? What happens? They're dressy up people. They like to, <laughs> they don't like being called that, but they yeah, so they- I'm a bit disparaging, yeah. It's, it's a costume, not a uniform to me. And where do you so, do it? Uh, we're normally in the, in the summer in fields in England and we, we create Napoleonic style battles. Okay. Um, all summer, all you know, summer Graham long. Jason and you guys walk up. Yeah, all summer long here they have um, going out battle. talking about history and yeah, I mean it's, it's a huge social element and they're, they're great guys. I've got I'm with the 95th Rifles, so there's a big link to Jason and Sharp. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, to me it's then bringing the history alive and talking to people about history and then they can imagine it because they can smell what a musket smells like and they can see a band playing and they can, mm-hmm. you know, there's the French, there's the British, it's, it's there in front of you, you don't need the imagination, so it's great. They, they are quite funny when you go to big fairs though and you get like, so you'll get at Detling a pitch of Vikings sitting next to a pitch of Eden Company from World War Two. Yeah. 
both fiercely refusing to break character. Um, (laughs) And the best one I ever saw was a reenactment of the Battle of Hastings at Detley. And it was basically the only two guys invested in it were William and uh, Harold. And it was two middle-aged men screaming at each other in the middle of a rainy field. They had one guy on a horse that was supposed to be the cavalry. And everybody in the infantry looked like it was their families that had been, like, recruited against their will to be in it. And they all had, like, early learning centre weapons. And they played the gladiator battle theme music for 20 minutes, screamed at each other. And then some <laughs> child got hit by a wooden javelin and cried. And that was the end of the Battle of Hastings. So they're very polarised, like, there's... Very different setups, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Alex describes it you know, quite well, actually. Because <laughs> I remember, I remember sitting there and you see Vikings and then hoplites and then Civil War and then suddenly there's the Viet Cong stroll by and it's like, what? <laughs> and then it's right a- in the corner because nobody really wants them on view, but you can't tell them they're not allowed to play or all the weirdos that like to dress up in Nazi stuff. Usually well away from the beaten path so that yeah, you don't walk past them. them. You just put all the Nazis in the corner and let them get on with their own weirdo. Yeah, it gets, it gets a bit, people do turn up with swastikas and stuff and you suddenly yeah, worry about that. Yeah, but it's just a costume and you're like, yeah, well, if we put you over there away from the general public and they probably won't walk up that end of the field, so then nobody will be offended by you. But, oh, you know, they'll always be out. I'll, I'll just say, because I've worked in museums all my life, um, pretty much um, since work experience days to today it's a great educational tool and these people they do their own research they go and find i mean some of these people they've gone into archives to find stuff about the uniforms of the napoleonic period that have been lost and it slightly redresses things and they go oh it's actually two buttons not four and there's this design of button that we thought they never had and it's over there and you think oh actually that doesn't matter that much but all of a sudden it's making things more accurate and it's helping the overall picture and um yeah, some people will take it very seriously. I know some people will camp out authentically and some people, like myself, it's a lovely social thing and like-minded people who like history, who like having a beer and mm. like to oh, run the around last and time I was at Zettling, I was set with, sat with the Easy Companies guys and they were eating Pringles out of a tube and watching Chelsea Burnley on my phone. <laughs> yeah, I've always got Haribo on me. Yeah, I'm like, it's quite easy. Jason, <laughs> we've got a couple more questions for you. Yes. Um, I quite like this question. Uh, Bjarke Fraser says, how much of yourself do you bring to the role of Harris? Did growing up as an Englishman in America help provide you with a sense of being an outsider that Harris brings with him? Um, yeah, it's funny. I, I kind of thought about that. I guess I am a bit of an outsider because I didn't grow up in the, I didn't go to drama school in England. I didn't go through that whole English thing and I sort of landed here. Um, but I, I kind of felt like I was not an outsider amongst the chosen men. So I never felt that I was, I was playing separate from those guys. But yes, I knew I was freakish looking, you know, my red hairs flowing out over the place. I, I like to think I was a super soldier, not just an intellectual, because I'd like to think I was as good a fighter as Sharp, uh, but way cleverer. So I, yeah, I, I, guess, so I guess there is a lot, there is a lot of me in there. Yeah, there is a lot of me. And David Branfield, actually, you just raised a point there. So they're whittling away the chosen men at this point. The first instalment of Sharp after battle with no Linden, how much did you miss him? Enormously, um, enormously. Uh, but I will say that when Sean, when Sean, when Linden left at the end of Sharp's battle, remember I said that Natasha and I went upstairs to our room and we did a pregnancy test. Yes. We discovered we we're about to become parents. So that was on my mind, basically, more than missing Lyndon. 
uh, <laughs> I must say, but yeah, it, I did. But you know, with Sword, I had a lot to, I had a lot to do. I had scenes, lines to remember, big stretches, you know, I had to be on the case. So I did have a lot on my mind to not have to worry about Lyndon. But yeah, of course I missed him. Absolutely. And it became more, um, acute when we got to Turkey the following year because I was just left wandering around on my own, you know, instead of getting up to mischief with Lyndon. Everything else that came in question wise for you is about what David Safry refers to as the candidy bum wipe scene. And Cocky has no qualms about potentially wiping his backside on Voltaire. Had you read Voltaire and how funny did you find it? Yes, I did. Roy Voltaire. Um, I've read Candide, the book we're talking about, Candidi. Um, my father is a writer, author, and I grew up surrounded by books. Every single space on the wall was taken with uh, bookshelves. So I'm horrified at the fact that you would wipe your ass on, on, a, on a copy of any book. Um, and I was equally horrified and I was a bit miffed at the screenwriters uh, because we discuss, so Candide is used as the, as the code that the baddie is using to communicate uh, back to back and forth. And we he, Harris finds a copy of Candide put underneath the dead Frenchman and it's supposed to be covered in blood. So, and then later on in the scene where we're in a campfire, Harris has this shredded version of the book, which was perfectly fine before, and he's burning it. And I'm thinking that's ridiculous. Harris wouldn't burn a book. The book is still readable. He wouldn't burn it. It's ridiculous. I was just going to ask about when you read that script for the first time, because with Lyndon, they started to flesh out the character and then they killed him off. So with this being, I think, the, the last episode of this series, were you worried when you started to read this that they're giving you more and more lines? Because shit, they're going to kill me off in a minute. I think that because I, because all those other guys, they, they die in the books. You know, Cooper and those guys, they die. So I knew that I, there was no death. I knew that Hagman was going to get a bullet in the lungs on page 232 of Waterloo. I knew that was coming, but there was no death of Harris. And I thought, can they kill us all off? No, 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 no. But, but I knew, I knew that there was going to be less chosen men because the next episode is Sharp's Regiment where he fucks off back to England and there's like a tiny bit of chosen men at the beginning. Of the end. So I didn't, I didn't think this was the end. I mean, I suspected one of us would die, but I thought, you know, it's going to come soon and we're going to be, we're two years away from the end of the books anyway. So no, I didn't, I didn't feel threatened. I felt emboldened. I thought if this is good, then they can't, they can't really get rid of me because it's useful to have a clever chosen man. Did you have any sense of why they were whittling you down? Was it just kind of have that attritional effect of war or was it because they wanted to make more of certain characters within the, the storyline? I think it was a lucky, a lucky coincidence. But as I said, as the books progress through the canon, the chosen men are less in there. And as I said, there is a death of tongue. There's a death of Cooper. In fact, way early, early in the books. So it was a little happy accident because on the first year, Paul Trussell got a job on a Mike Lee uh, movie play. It was going to be a movie. So he got that job offer before the sharp got the green light for the second year. So he, he accepted that offer. Okay. So that just happened. They thought, oh, great. So they just like d divided up his lines and divided up the money and sort of gave us a little bit. So, and then on the third year, Michael Mears said, listen, I only want to do one episode this year. Can I do one episode and possibly come back later on? So that was another happy accident. So why they felt they had to kill Lyndon, I don't know. So it was a bit of an accident that we lost the first two. So I didn't necessarily feel there was a cull going on, although, you know, 
that's exactly what was going on. So no, I didn't feel I was I was going to die. Soon. You know, we were causing a bit of trouble uh, in terms of industrial action offset with water riots and bacon riots. Mm -hmm. So I did think, oh, <laughs> they might want to get rid of me that way. But uh, no, far, as far as character-wise, I thought Harris was okay. He, he was quite safe. Uh, we've had questions for people about other things in their careers. Um, and we've got one for you as well. Uh, what was it like working with Hugh Grant on About a Boy? It was great fun. He's a really cool dude, actually. Um, and this is in my book, From Crimea with Love, by the way. What? Um, oh. shortly, shortly after the second year, available from Unbound, pre-ordering right now. Um, <laughs> when does it come out? Second, sorry? When does it come out? It comes out on July the 9th. But you can, seven. Sorry, 7th. You can, <laughs> can pre-order like, now. How can you get it wrong? <laughs> so, right. So, after the second sharp, company enemy honor i get a call from liz hurley now she should we had been on, on in touch you know because you know but you if you if you get liz hurley's number you call her don't you yeah being mad um you took every opportunity to stay in touch with liz hurley it's not absolutely definitely anyway so she calls me out the blue and says jason hugh's playing football and he needs someone to play and i was like absolutely so i went round to their place in fulham and i had tea and breakfast and stuff and hugh and i went off to play um he was playing for Penguin Books and we were playing the V&A. And uh, I ended up in goal because, you know, that's where you put. You know, it was good because I would, I'd spent three months or four months on Sharp. So I really needed the Betty Ford click rather than playing a hefty game of football. And uh, so I remember, I remember um, towards the end of the match, uh, Hugh felled one of the V&A people in the box and it was a penalty. And I said, don't worry, Hugh, I've got this man. No worry, sorted, sorted. Um, penalty came in. I, I dived across, got one hand to it. I thought I'd saved it, but it actually bounced into the net. So I was like, jumping up down. And he said, no, JC, when is that? So we had, I had a really nice uh, relationship with Hugh already. So by the time we got to About a Boy, it was my second helping of hanging out with Hugh. So he's really cool, really great, and not at all like the foppish a feet uh, image he has, you know. I, I guess he shed that image now, but but he was great. He was brilliant. I, I loved working with him. Guys, any more anecdotes about filming that you want to share for Sharp Sword? Oh yes, yes, uh, John. So you don't, uh, John Kavanagh. Um, so sure, uh, Sharp gets cured on the Mirador with this icy water that you you suggest that you've seen somewhere. You saw somewhere where you see it. You see it somewhere in action somewhere. Anyway, on a he's ship. In the, um, oh. He's in the navy. He's fighting. Navy, yes. Yes. He's fighting the British at Trafalgar. That's right. So, yeah. so the water source was actually down on the lower balcony and they rigged up this sort of Napoleonic pulley system. But every time the thing got pulled up, the whole bucket <laughs> ended, yes. up <laughs> ended up on top ended up on top of you and John's hands. Yeah, good lord, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Beautiful scene. And it was it was amazing going to Portugal after being in the Crimea, of course. I mean the food and the and the sunshine. So it was, it was quite a schizophrenic episode, Sharp's, uh, Sharp's. Yes, I remember going up to Sintra with, uh, who's the horse master? Roy, Roy Street, wasn't it? Street. Roy, yeah. he's not with us either, is he? No, he's not with us now. Yeah, he's a great guy. He did some good fun, and he had some good fun there too. Some great anecdotes that he could have told. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And adventures in the Crimea. Mm. Definitely. Yeah, we had, uh, I remember one time we had to pull him. Oh, 
balcony. I think I think what he did was he was really unfortunate that fellow, but he was trying to transverse traverse the uh, one balcony to another across the little barrier thing, and somebody had gotten sick on the on the other side of the thing, and he slipped on the on the the vomit and went down. He went. But I was wondering why we saw so many people out there with uh, with kind of makeshift crutches and things like that because they tend just to chop your if you have any sort of leg injuries to just take them off. I think. But but you're not confusing the the Irish mission where we actually had real amputees because because the the Irish mission that Father Curtis runs. I remember actually, that. Yeah, yeah. But I saw I saw people in the street, lost them in the street. You know, some of the saddest thing I've never seen. I've, I've never seen poverty quite like it. I mean, there was a guy I used to pass him every day on the way down to Yalta, and he was selling he was selling two pot scrubs, pot scrubs. Another fellow with a with a bathroom scales. We sell you. You could buy. You get yourself weighed for a couple of. Whatever it was, Copics. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I've got a lovely picture of um, a babushka in the Alta Market, the bazaar, and she has an upturned uh, cardboard box and it's like two dried fish, a pack of cigarettes and a bottle of Pepsi Cola. That was yeah. the entire stock. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty sad, but it's gotten mm. a lot better. It's, it's, it's a gangster's paradise now. Natasha, come out. We're finishing now anyway. Come say out. Hello. Yes. Come hello. on, Natasha. Come on. Say hello. <laughs> And John, I remember you looked so amazing in your costume. It was so like, and your sword fights were always yeah. like a dance almost because of this, what would you call the pre-cassock? Yeah, the, the, the cassock, I yeah. don't know the yeah cassock, and it was always all in black against this beautiful, yeah. um, you know, mountains or like yeah. you know, it was just so beautiful. Uh -huh. I remember being mesmerized. That's my memory. Yeah, I was used. To, I, I, I was an altar boy, so I was used to wearing wearing uh, soutans and stuff like that. You know, and when it was the days of the Latin mass, that ages me now. <laughs> or it very gracefully and properly. <laughs> that was a wonderful experience. We were just saying, just recalling all that. that it's got a very vivid memories. You know, it's wonderful. I mean, uh, it's amazing. amazing. I'm to go back to the Crimea. I actually love the Crimea. I, I quite liked it. You know, I really did. I just we, love we've returned, we, we returned a few times. Um, 2000, 2004, 2007, 2011. But then when the whole thing kicked off, we said, no way, I'll yeah. go back again. Technical question, Zach, why is your picture so much clearer and your sound so much better than anybody else's? I have no clue, to be honest with you. Um, I'd like to say that I'm just wonderful like that, but I'd, I'd be lying to you. You were just saying, I know. I just thought maybe being in some sort of nerd was a skill. <laughs> no, ironically, Zach's on like an 18-year-old laptop and usually his is the worst sound of all. So it just must be some freak atmospheric. Yeah, it must be. Today. Guys, thank you so much for reliving Sharp Sword with us. Cocky, Hugh, thank John, um, and of course, James. It's been fantastic. It's been a real, real pleasure. What a charming, lovely way to spend an hour and a half. Thank you so much. Great to see you. Lovely to see you again, James. And I've got to say, Very I nice. Bravest thing I've ever seen any actor do on that horse. But Bless you. All the people behind you were all thinking, "Fuck! Thank God we're not doing that." How <laughs> I, I wanted to. I wanted to tell you that 
I've never seen you since. <laughs> that is so lovely. Thank you, Cocky. Uh, Hugh, all of you, John, uh, everyone. It would be such a lovely way to spend uh, an hour and a half. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Lots Thanks of love for having to us. All. Lovely to see everybody. Lovely to see you all. Lovely Thanks, to see guys. Lovely Bye. to see Bye. you all. And you. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks guys. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.